Welcome back to our Growing the Good Christian Girl episode three. And as you may remember, we're in the middle of a three-part series right now on hell. So last week we had an amazing interview with Pastor Steve Doherty, and today we're going to follow that up with an interview with Pastor Joshua Butler, the author of The Skeletons in God's Closet. So after my initial beginning to change the way I thought about hell, I was still left with some questions like, so is hell an actual place or is it all figurative? Um, what about what happens, you know, if somebody doesn't check the I'm a Christian box by the time they die, what happens then? And most of all, like, why did Jesus die? Like, if hell isn't what I thought it was, then what was the purpose of Jesus's death and resurrection? And those are some of the questions we're diving into today. So Pastor Joshua is the author of The Skeletons in God's Closet, and I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is linked down below. You should absolutely buy this book and read it. This podcast interview like barely scratches the surface of this book, which is deep and biblical and gives us beautiful, holistic perspective of like the Bible story as a whole. And some of the things that we don't always, or I haven't always seen in the scriptures, so powerful. So Joshua Ryan Butler, I'm going to read you his bio, serves as the pastor of um, a local and global outreach church in Oregon. He oversees the church's city ministries in areas like foster care, human trafficking, and homelessness, and develops international partnerships in areas like clean water, HIV support, and church planting. He's also a worship leader and enjoys writing music. And he has another book out called The Pursuing God, which I also have just ordered for myself and recommend for you guys to check out too. So let's get right into this interview. Joshua, I am so excited to have you on my podcast. Thank you for taking the time. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I've been reading your book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, and it has been blowing my mind. I just keep asking myself, like, how have I grown up as a Christian? And I've never heard these perspectives. Like, I don't understand how this possible. It's just grounded. It's biblical. So my first question for you is this. When you were younger, what did you believe about hell? That's a great question. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in the church, actually, so that was something that was not really a part of, of my story. And I, I did, though, mm. it was interesting, I had a, um, a friend of our family's gave uh, my mom a children's Bible when, she was, when I was a kid. And so I, I fell in love with it. I was like five, six years old. I started reading it every day. And uh, we, we didn't go to church. I didn't really have that context, but I, I fell in love with the biblical story. And I did have this sense mm. of... Um, God being big and God being present and, and all, but it was really the Old Testament stories that struck me a lot more. And I, I remember one of the biggest impressions I had was a God who was with the, the hurting, the vulnerable, you know, you could see in um, the hard things of life, Abraham, you know, uh, not having, you know, being promised a child and, and not having one you know, when he's very old or Moses, uh, the, you know, God's people being slaves in Egypt and King David being on the run, headed down for his life. And uh, so so I, I had this sense that God was big, God was real, God was there. Um, mm. But it was, wasn't until later, really in college, that I kind of had an experience with Jesus that really kind of rocked my world. And I remember coming back to my dorm room and telling my dorm mate, I said, oh my gosh, I encountered Jesus. And grace, God is so good. And I, you know, I went on for a couple of minutes about just how, how amazing God was. 
and I got done and he was like, so do you think I'm going to hell now? And, and wow. I, I, you know, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. even talking about hell. That wasn't even on my radar. I hadn't even mentioned it like that. Um, and yet that was his first association. And I began to realize mm. as I began processing with a lot of my friends who were not Christians, that was like a major question they had for me. And it slowly became one of my questions. Like, oh, how do I make sense of that? What is going on there? Mm. How does that reconcile with the goodness of God and the biblical story? Yeah. Now I know you're a pastor too, as well as an author. And so you've, you've gotten to hear a lot of people's stories. And one of the things we're talking about on this podcast is just the fruit that way of thinking bears. Since Jesus said, pay attention to the fruit that a tree bears, you know, you'll know it by its fruit. So I'm curious, like when people have that idea of hell as whatever it may be, you talk in your book about an underground torture chamber. (laughs) What is the fruit of that idea that you've seen play out in people's lives? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, one of the ways I talk about in the book, you know, is that there's maybe two different storylines that that people can tend to think about it in. And I think they can give rise to different fruit, right? So so Mm -hmm. one storyline, what I call kind of the problematic story is uh, a very common one for many people, and it's the storyline that kind of goes like earth now, heaven, hell later, right? Like mm-hmm. earth now, heaven, hell later. So it's kind of just like right now I live on earth, one day I'm going to die, and when I die, God's either going to whisk me up to heaven or down to hell. And um, mm-hmm. there's a number of problems with that storyline, but one is I think it can kind of become escapist. Like the goal is to get out of earth, to escape uh, totally. this world now, yeah. and heaven and hell don't really have any relationship in that story to our experience here and now today. Um, and so I think that can give rise at times to uh, a, a faith. That, it can give rise to fruit where it's kind of like, okay, the goal is to get out of this world, to kind of ignore and avoid the problems now, to just make sure we get right, people to right. pray the prayer and kind of escape the bad stuff and, and, and that kind of a um, theme. Whereas the gospel story that I, I talk about is that uh, the gospel story is that goes that um it's a story of God creates a good heavens and a good earth. Uh, they're, they're then torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. Uh, but because mm-hmm. God is good, he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell. Like, and so mm-hmm. in this storyline, hell is an invader in God's good world that, whose power is actually actively at work today. We see it in the massive uh, big-picture levels, things like genocide and uh, sex trafficking and war and things most of us would look mm-hmm. at and go, oh, that's really horrible. These are like wildfires tearing apart our world. But we also see mm-hmm. it on very intimate personal lo- levels, things like pride and lust and gra- rage and greed and these vices of the human heart that are kind of like the sparks within us that set the world aflame. And mm-hmm. Jesus confronts both. And because Jesus is good, he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to restore the world from the destructive power of sin, death, and hell, that, that tears it apart. And so I think the fruit of that storyline, it, it becomes different. It's not an escapist one, but it's actually where, okay, we want to participate with Jesus as his people and be in a place where we get the wicked root of sin, the kind of wicked sparks of hell, like get them out of our own hearts through mm-hmm. repentance and confession and receiving the reconciling grace of Jesus as our king. And we also want to be his agents, you know, who are at, at work like with him in partnership with his kingdom to actually see heaven come on earth here and now and pushing the destructive Mm -hmm. power of hell out of our lives, out of our families, out of our communities, out of our city, you know, like, like that we would actually be agents of kingdom restoration in the world today. Mm -hmm. And there is a future hope. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you. 
No, that's great. Now, and there okay. is that ultimate future hope that God's kingdom is coming, and you know, like his his victory will banish the power of hell from his good mm. world and will set things right. And yet, we want to anticipate yeah. that even now today as his people. Yeah, I love that. So, I I want to just unpack this just a tiny bit more. You set such a great scene, but could you give us kind of that biblical background? Because I think I always thought the biblical background was this idea of the escapist mentality that you talk about. So can you, can you kind of walk us through just the basics of this idea of heaven and earth? You talk about in your book it, that the correlation isn't heaven and hell in the Bible. It's heaven and earth actually. And yeah, can you walk us through that a little bit? Great. Definitely. Yeah. So you think of the opening verse in the Bible, Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the picture Mm -hmm. here is like heaven and earth are created with and for one another. They're like a, complementary pair designed together in order to um, bring life and flourishing into God's world. And they're created good, like they're uh, Mm -hmm. um, created good by God. And it's interesting because I think often, as you mentioned, uh, for many people today, I think there's kind of a sense of uh, heaven and hell being these primary counterparts. You know, like um, we tend to think of them as, you know, one's yin, the other's yang. One's the good side of the battery, yes. the other's the negative side of the battery, positive, negative. Or, you know, we tend to think yeah. of them as kind of these counterparts that are, um, we primarily understand heaven and hell in relationship to one another. And what's interesting to me is, like, that's not how the Bible talks about them. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I talk about in the book is here's an interesting experiment you can do. If you go to uh, an online Bible where you can search, you know, like say like right, BibleGateway.com right. is one and, uh-huh. you know, pick NIV. And if you type in heaven, hell and hit search, it's going to show you how many times heaven and hell appear together in the same verse in the Bible. And what many people are shocked to find is that the answer is zero. Like there are yeah. no places in the biblical story where heaven and hell appear together like that. Now, obviously hell shows up and heaven shows up, but it, the uh-huh. Bible tends to have a different way of talking about their relationship. Mm. Yet, heaven does have a counterpart. As we mentioned, the counterpart is earth. If you run that same search feature, you know, you type in heaven and earth and hit search. And what we find is that over 200 times in the biblical story, heaven and earth mm. appear together. And they're not just clustered in one area like the Psalms. Like, it's, it's really from beginning to end. Like, the whole biblical story Heaven and earth are like this narrative thread that runs mm-hmm. throughout the story as a whole and ties it together. And I think that's really helpful when we reframe like, okay, this is a story of heaven and earth. And yet mm-hmm. there is Genesis 3. Like, like God created heaven and earth good, but sin, death, and hell are wreaking havoc on our world today. Like they have been mm-hmm. torn by this destructive power of sin. It's interesting to me that um, before Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, God is walking in the garden with humanity. They're together. There's communion. There's rich communion with God. It's like heaven and earth are one. But then mm-hmm. after Genesis 3, there's this picture where then God's throne, his heavenly presence and all, is, is described as more being in the heavens. And, um, and there's right. language of like the earth he's given to, to humanity. And so there's kind of the sense mm-hmm. that like now God is in heaven and we're on earth and we're wreaking havoc with sin and, and the mm-hmm. power of the enemy, the power of hell is at work wreaking havoc in the world. And yet what we find in the gospel is that God's plan is not to whisk us away and kind of get us away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually to reconcile and restore creation from the ravages of sin. 
So uh, I love Colossians 1 where Paul says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus in order to reconcile through himself all things in heaven and all things on earth by making peace through his blood and shed on the cross. And what Paul's saying here is that um, this is actually the point of the cross. Like Part of the point and purpose of the cross, what Jesus accomplishes through his blood shed on the cross, his atonement, Mm -hmm. is actually the reconciliation of heaven and earth Mm -hmm. from the fragmenting power of sin that this is the heart of the gospel is God bringing heaven and earth back together. Um, Yeah. And which is so different than what I heard growing up, you know, it's like completely different story. Like you said, yeah. So I'm curious then. So what would you say that hell is? And in your book, you talk about the mercy of hell. Why is hell merciful? What is it? Would you talk more about that? Great. Great. Uh, Well, a few angles I, I use in the book is to say, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, I kind of use that image of, I think, the underground torture chamber is kind of the picture that many of us have. Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, and what I try and do is kind of pick that apart, you know, there's a chapter on each, but saying, like, uh, that A, it's Hell's location is not underground, B, its purpose is not <laughs> torture, and C, its construction is not a chamber. And, and so, mm-hmm. um, to give kind of a brief overview of those, uh, as far as its location, I explore how uh, its location in the New Testament is not underground. It's actually better understood as being outside the city. And mm. what I mean by that is um, Jesus' primary word for hell is Gehenna. And it can surprise many people to know that Gehenna was an actual physical place. It was not like deep down in the bowels of the earth. It was not like right. in a galaxy far, far away. It was actually a valley, a famous valley just outside Jerusalem's walls known as the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, Gehenna is the Mm. Greek transliteration for the Valley of Hinnom. And this place shows up many places in the Old Testament, and it's got a dark and dangerous history. It's uh, This infamous association was it was the place of child sacrifice. It's where the people in the Old Testament, Mm. they would go outside the city of Jerusalem. They would light their flames in the Valley of Hinnom in Gehenna. And they would sacrifice their children on the altar to false gods, like the god Moloch. Mm. And so when you read in the Old Testament uh, about like the people going up to the high places with Asherah poles and the people sacrificing the children to Moloch, uh, this was um, happening in Gehenna. Uh, in the Valley of Gehenna, it was, it was mm. like a, an epicenter for child sacrifice. And so in the prophets of the Old Testament, what we find is the Valley of Hinnom becomes a symbol for Israel's idolatry and injustice. It becomes kind of a picture Mm -hmm. of how far gone the people of God have become in worshiping other gods and committing abominable practices. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of this picture of, yeah, the, the idolatry and injustice. And yet the hope of the prophets was because God is good, he's coming back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to his capital as king and he's going to reestablish his kingdom. And then the imagery in places like Isaiah 66 and elsewhere was when God establishes his kingdom, he's going to kick the rebellion outside Jerusalem, outside the city of walls, mm. out into the valley of Hinnom, back mm. to where it came from. Right? Like, like God is right, kicking right. the rebellion back to where it came from. It's like, the, you know, uh, Star Wars, the destruction of the Death Star, yeah. and the sending of the rebel forces <laughs> out into the periphery, into the distance. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's just such a different picture. So it's this idea of like being outside the city of God, essentially. So instead of it being this locked chamber where God sends you as a narcissist to punish you, it's like 
you want to walk on your own apart from me, you need to be outside the city. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. And it's interesting because, again, I think often we tend to think of um, up and down, right? Like good folks go up, bad folks right. go down. And the gospel picture uh-huh. is more center periphery, like God reestablishing his kingdom at the center of creation and the rebellion mm-hmm. and those forces that are unrepentantly opposed to his kingdom getting pushed outside, out, out to the periphery where they can no longer hurt or destroy. And one of the things that's striking to me is this uh, has a similar structure to um, a lot of the epic stories of our world, stories we love. You know, like when you hear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mentioned Star Wars, or, you know, like, like uh-huh. when the Ewoks and everyone are dancing, when I was a kid, end up Return of the Jedi, and everyone's all stoked, like, <laughs> we won the victory, and no one's right. bummed that the rebel forces are slinking off into the distance, you know, or you think right. of other stories like uh, Cinderella, and when Cinderella and the prince get together at the end, and there's the wedding, and we're all so happy, and we're not bummed that the three wicked stepsisters are like slinking off into the periphery where they can, you know, throughout the whole story, they've been standing against this wedding. And now it's appropriate and fitting that when the wedding comes at the end, that the opponents of it are kind of, you know, they, 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 they they go off to the periphery where they can no longer. So I've noticed a sense, you know, over the years since, like just watching virtually every epic movie, there's some Mm kind of theme like this. And, and I think it's, because it bears witness to the true story of the world. Like the end of creation is a wedding, the wedding of Christ and his church, the wedding at the center of God's kingdom. Uh, Yet part of that reality is those forces that have stood unrepentantly opposed to the union of God with his people, of Christ with his church, um, they will no longer be allowed to hurt or destroy on all of God's holy mountain. They will no longer be able to wreak havoc on God's relationship with his people and with creation. Mm -hmm. And so the... The purpose there becomes not so much torture as rather um, right. protection. Like God protects his kingdom and it's flourishing mm. by containing the destructive power of sin outside of his kingdom. And I love how you talked in your book about there's like, four, I think it was four different ways that God could have handled, you know, the people who can, or the forces that continued to want to walk in injustice and violence and such. And you were saying this is the most merciful way. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Great. Yeah. So uh, I, I use kind of an analogy, the imagery of, um, you know, if we think of the cross as a wedding proposal, which we see in the gospel, you know, like Jesus is the groom and he lays down his life for his bride. And ultimately at the cross, he's saying, hey, be united with me in life forever. Like I'm giving my life in order to be with you, you with me, and not even death will be able to separate us, uh, you know. So uh-huh. the cross is like this invitation into union with Christ as His people, as His bride. And the question I asked, kind of like, well, what options are there if we say no? You know, like if we go, right. God, I, I, I prefer life on my own rather than life with you. As far as mm-hmm. I can tell, there's really only four options. Um, as far as like you know, uh, what what can happen from that? One option is for God to say. Well, hey, just marry me and bring in your old lovers. You know, like, kind of like, <laughs> hey, well, marry me, but just bring in the idols, the injustice, bring in the other things that you've kind of given your life to. And we would all look at that and go, that's a sham marriage. You know, like, that's not, mm. th- that wouldn't be more loving of God to say, hey, just bring in the sin that you repent, you refuse to repent and let go of. The abusive um, ex-boyfriend. Would, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. totally. The abusive ex-boyfriend. It's like, you're allowing, uh, like, that would make a farce of redemption. It would be saying that creation is redeemed, and yet you would still be seeing all the same stuff that's tearing the world apart right now still inside. You know, So mm. that's not more loving. Uh, the second option 
I think would be to say, hey, uh, marry me or I'll kill you. <laughs> and so that, right. that would Which be kind of Which is what I've always fix- thought with hell, yeah. essentially. Yes. Yeah. Totally, totally. And so I use that kind of as a picture for, you know, some versions of uh, called annihilationism. God kind of going, hey, marry me, be united in life with me forever, or I'm going to snuff you, you know? And a few right. problems with that, you know, like, uh, one is it's a really bad way to propose, right? If yeah. anyone listening to this is planning on it, you call Tiffany, call me, like, let us counsel you. That don't, don't do that, right? Yeah, if someone's offering that, doesn't sound like a good offer. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, but another problem with it theologically is I think it minimizes the scope and power of Christ's resurrection uh, to actually, mm-hmm. part of what Christ is overcoming through his death and resurrection is our annihilation in the grave. Like Jesus is overcoming our death right. and disillusion under that power. And so now the question is, how do we stand in relation to the God who raises us? You know, how do we stand in relation to Christ who brings us up from the grave? Mm-hmm. Um, but in short, I don't, I don't think marry me or I'll kill you is a very good merciful option. <laughs> if, you, if you think of the, uh, the third option, I call it kind of, you know, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement, you know, and, and this is sort of the idea of, um, there are some versions of like universalism that would say, well, hell is bad, but God uses it to kind of purge us of the bad stuff and to make us fit so that we eventually then come into his kingdom. And mm-hmm. a few problems with this one, I think, um, Again, it's a really bad way to propose, <laughs> but <laughs> B, uh, I think it misunderstands the nature of love. Like, like coercion right. doesn't incite love. I, I mean, if you think of someone who's been abducted, uh, we do see that at times people who've been abducted, they can develop a strange kind of bond or attachment with their abductor, but we'd that all like go and say, Stockholm that. syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, Stockholm syndrome, right? But we'd all look at that and go, that's not healthy. Like, there's something wrong right, with that, right. you know? And I, so I think there's a, misunderstanding of the nature of love to say, hey, God's just kind of using it to um, punish you into suddenly falling in love with him or something, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. I don't think that works. And the fourth and final version, though, um, which I think is the most natural way to propose and the best kind of most merciful option is to say, hey, (laughs) marry me or go your own way. You know, like, like I'm inviting Mm -hmm. you into union with me. I'm inviting you into life with me. uh, And yet... If you, um, if, if you prefer life on your own rather than life with me, then I'll hand you over to that. You're like, like you'll, right, right. and, and I, I think when you think about it in like the wedding proposal context, it shows a certain respect and dignity to, I'm actually going to yeah. respect and dignify your response, even if it's a horrible response, you know, like, and we're talking about right. God in relation to us, um, that's not to say that, you know, I, I do believe God is calling out sin, he's judging, he's dealing with the, you know, rebellion of the human heart and all that kind of stuff. But there's an aspect to it, too, where uh, God is calling out what we really want and giving us over mm-hmm. to what we really want. And so I think the question at the heart of the gospel, the question at the heart of this tension is going, do we prefer life with God and union with him as his people, or do we prefer our own autonomy, our independence, the freedom to just kind of live life on our own terms. Because mm-hmm. when you think about saying yes to a wedding proposal, it's like, on the one hand, saying yes to God, it's the easiest thing in the world because Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the cost. It's free. There's nothing you have to do. Mm-hmm. God wants to be in you with you so badly. He went to the cross in Christ to, to right. be united with you forever. And so it's the easiest thing in the world. But I also like to say it's also from another angle, it's the hardest thing in the world. Because being in un- united 
And life with God means letting go of your autonomy and independence and desire to kind of live on your own terms and control your existence. You know, like you are going, God, I'm submitting my life to you. I'm bending the knee to you and your kingdom. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus questioned us. It's not, hey, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? Jesus' question is, uh, will you let me heal you? Like, like I, I want to, right. I'm here for you. I've gone all the way to hell and back to unite myself, you know, to, not, to, to be united with you in life forever. But yeah. the gospel presents this question of, do we want that? Or do we prefer life on our own terms? Yeah. I remember the first time I like had ever heard of this idea was in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And I was, and hearing you, reading your book, I was like, wow, like it, it reminds me in some ways of what he wrote. And it was so like, I don't know, at least for me, it was so revolutionary to say, so it's not necessarily about torturing, but it's like the loving thing to say, okay, you can live apart from me. And that, you know, eventually like that is, that is hell. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, hell. Yeah, I love, you know, Lewis, he has this great line in there. It says, you know, in the end, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. You know, kind of a, mm, you know, like right, those right. who, yeah, that that whole piece. And I, I love to, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I talk about in the book too in relation to torture is just going, there's a difference between uh, torment and torture. You know, I think we often kind of confuse the two terms and um, how I think torment properly understood, it arises from the inside out, whereas torture kind of arises from the outside in. And so when you think of, uh, Mm -hmm. I can have a headache um, because I have a, you know, I can have, my head can hurt either because I have a headache kind of from the inside out or because right. you're hitting me over the head with the two-by-four from the outside in, right? Right. I think yeah. often when we think about this in relation to hell, we're kind of thinking of torture, like God's hitting us over the head with the two-by-four. But I think the picture uh-huh. that we see in the gospel is when we prefer life on our own terms, independent of God, that's like the root of sin. And that leads to a tormented reality, like, like life mm. apart from God on our own terms is not the way life is designed to be. It's not the flourishing we're made for. We, we already see a lot of that in our world today yeah. and it's yeah part of what the Jesus is out to do that is, are not so. not beautiful yeah. <laughs> so i i, I want to get into some parables in a second here because in your book you talk about the parables and they're amazing but first i just want to ask this um i think a question that bothers a lot of us is this one who ends up in hell and who ends up in heaven like if you haven't checked the christian box by the time you die you know even if you've never heard of jesus are you denied access to heaven? Like, what would you, how would you talk about that? Great. A great, excellent question. So one of the themes I look at in the second section of the book is uh, what I like mm-hmm. to call the surprise of judgment, which is saying um, that when you look at Jesus's teaching on judgment, one of its chief characteristics, if not the chief characteristic, is that its outcome is a surprise. And so one of the mistakes I think we can make at times is um, Christians is kind of going, hey, we can know with certainty who's in and who's out and, and get everything sorted. This side. And really, I uh-huh. think what the gospel does is it takes that power or whatever, you know, kind of out of our hands and it places it in the hands of Jesus and goes, I don't know. I think it's legitimate as Christians go, um, I don't know. I want to strive to be united with Christ and to live, you know, fully with him. Uh, but that's his territory at, at the end of the day. Uh, and right. so one of the big themes we see throughout Jesus' teaching is that when God arise. When God establishes his kingdom, kingdom come, new creation, resurrection of the dead, we all stand before the white judgment throne and God calls things out as they really are. 
part of what happens is uh, this weeding out from within God's people and this gathering mm-hmm. in from outside God's people. And so yeah. repeatedly throughout Jesus, there's this weeding out from within God's people, kind of the hypocrisy and the wolves among the sheep and the wheat um, or the weeds among the wheat and the, uh, right. you know, all these different images of corruption and hypocrisy amongst people of God, people who are amongst the people of God, but are not truly of the people of God. You know? But then also see this picture of Jesus uh, talking about the um, nations come streaming from east and west and north and south into the kingdom. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the prodigals and the prostitutes and the, uh, the, the poor and the blind and the sick and the lame and the unexpected yeah. and those who didn't think, you know, um, those who are like, Jesus, when did we see you? When did we know you? When did we do those things? And they're like, when did we give you a drink of water? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's totally like they seem shocked or surprised, you know, to find themselves being welcomed into the kingdom. But Jesus, yeah. in effect, is like, I've known you all along, you know. And so mm-hmm. one of the ways I talk about the book is like, uh, it's, it's less important that we claim to know Jesus and more important that Jesus claims to know us, right? Like mm-hmm. that, um, that Jesus talks about, man, many who did all these great things in my name and said, uh, you know, like had these reputations, uh, whatever. And Jesus is like, I never knew you. You know, and right. so we often talk about like the question, like, do you know Jesus? And that's important. I get that. But the more important question when it comes to God seems to be like, did Jesus know you? <laughs> you know? And, mm. and what does that mean yeah. to just to know you? And I think part of what we're invited to now, even today, is just um, our lives being vulnerably laid bare before Christ and a mm. recognition of our need for his redemptive mercy and that that he would actually... Obviously, at one level, like, he knows everything. You know, like, we're talking about just abstract knowledge. But in the uh-huh. sense that he knows us like you know your best friend. Or, you know, like, he knows the depths of your story. And you're not resisting him having access mm-hmm. to the fullness of who you are in your life. You're yeah. laying your life vulnerably before him. I believe that's something that the gospel invites us to here and now today. So going to totally throw a question at you, a curveball here that I didn't tell you I was going to ask. But I just was thinking, you know, with that perspective of weeding out from among God's people and gathering in from outside, like I can see that causing a lot of fear and anxiety for Christians. Like, how do I know I'm his? What would you say about that? Yes, that is a great question. Um, There is a passage in 1 John that I love, and I'm trying to wrap my hand. I'm kind of looking at it right now. Um, oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, but where uh, it was in First John three, but where um, one second here, let me find it. But John essentially says, "This is how we can have confidence on the mm-hmm. day of judgment." And he talks about um, here we go. First, First John four. Uh, this is how love is made complete among us, that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. That in this world we are like Jesus, and as we live in God. Uh, so the, the picture here is what John is talking about in, the, in this area is that God is love. And the way that we can feel this confidence in the day of judgment is that we are um, living into the love of God, essentially. You know, and, and I think it's, it's powerful how Jesus talks about, they will know you are my disciples by your love. And I talk about the first yeah. fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is yeah. love. It's love, joy, peace, patience. So I think if you're kind of questioning like, well, am I in or am I out? Am I... And, and do I need to be worried about getting weeded out? I think right. the question that's helpful to ask is, are you growing in the love of Christ? You know, like, mm-hmm. like is your life being shaped and formed 
saturated by growing in love of Jesus. And John's going like, well, that's how you have confidence, knowing it's all going to be great on the day of judgment, is that the mm. love of God is taking root in your life, and your life is mm. being shaped and transformed by, by the love of God. And so I think, I do believe that um, we can have, you know, what's been called assurance, assurance of salvation. Because some people could say, well, if you're saying God's judgment is a surprise, does that mean, it, it doesn't mean that God's just picking names out of a hat or just doing something random. You know, like, like what God is doing is he's <laughs> calling out reality as it really is. He's revealing, you know, those who truly want him and those who mm-hmm. don't. And I think we get a taste of this today. You know, I think of some of the scandals like... Um, Ravi Zacharias or Carl Lentz. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of popular kind of scandals, and, and I'm not trying to yeah. make some claim as far as like me knowing eternal destiny, that kind of thing. But right, I am right, saying like right. we see these people that we thought on a superficial outside-in level, oh my gosh, they're a leader amongst God's mm-hmm. people. They love Jesus. They're doing all these amazing things for Jesus. And then like the curtain gets pulled back, and you realize mm-hmm. like, oh no, there was a lot of stuff hidden in their closet. You know, there was a lot of um, dark stuff going yeah. on behind closed doors. I think a, a good friend of mine who grew up being re- regularly molested by a priest, and I share you know, some of his story mm-hmm. in the book, but yeah. to the outside community, he looked like the troubled youth with a chip on his shoulder, and the priest looked like the good, upstanding citizen. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the reasons that God's judgment is needed is because there is this deception of appearances that mm-hmm. has to get pulled back if things are going to get healed, if reality is going to be dealt with right. as it truly is. And so um, so the takeaway, I don't think it's that we need to be kind of going, oh, no, does God not really want me, or am I going to get kicked out? You know, I think the takeaway is going, Do uh, am I growing in the love of God? And mm-hmm. if so, like I can have assurance and confidence in, in Christ. But if I've got areas of my life, even if I seem like a good, upstanding Christian on the outside and that kind of thing, but I've got kind of some deep, dark areas that I'm clinging to and keeping to myself and I'm unwilling mm-hmm. to be vulnerable with before God and before others. Um, that is a warning sign, I think, to go, hey, just because you're mm-hmm. going to church on Sunday or doing the thing right. or saying you're a Christian, like um, God deals in reality, not just with mm-hmm. the superficial exterior impressions. And so I think there is a warning there to kind of take stock and go, all right, God, am I really laying the fullness of my life before you and seeking to be transformed mm. and changed by your your presence, your love. That totally makes sense. I'm, I'm reminded again of a C.S. Lewis book, The Last Battle, the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, how he's talking about Tash, the other God, and it's the end of the world and judgment. And one of the warriors and soldiers for Tash ends up in the new Narnia. And he's like, Aslan, who are you? How did it get here? And Aslan's like, I saw your heart and everything you did in service of Tash, you were really doing for me. And it was just like, I read that and I was like, whoa, I just have to like think about this for a long time. <laughs> but I, I'm not saying it exactly right. But just this idea of like looking at the heart and that surprise that, you know, when did we give you water <laughs> when you were mm. thirsty? Like, I don't remember this, God. And he's like, I saw you. I mm. knew you. So, so yeah. Yeah. And one of the things, if I can just kind of say quickly, one of the things yeah. I'm trying to do, try to do in the book a bit too, is going um, a little bit of a, a pendulum swing or kind of re recentering. So if you think about it, the first section of the book's on hell, second section on judgment. And in the first section on uh, hell, I think we, basically, I think we tend to have a very 
active view of God's agency when it comes to hell, and we have a very passive view of God's agency when it comes to judgment. And I've wanted to mm. kind of supplement that with the other side of the coins, right? So uh, mm. when it comes to hell going, like, um, I think the, the active view is like, people kind of going, man, I really want God, but he doesn't want me, and he's throwing me in the torture chamber, you know? And right. going like, no, the biblical vision is more, there is this other side of going, we're, from one angle, we're getting what we want. Right? Like, like God is calling right. out reality. And so it's, it doesn't mean God's passive, but it does mean that there's an angle to that where God's handing us over to what we want. He's calling it we've chosen. But then when it comes to judgment, we can kind of have the opposite problem where we think of God as very passive where God's like, well, I want to let you in, but you didn't say the prayer or you didn't feed enough. Mm. You know, like, like, like my hands are kind of tied because you didn't do the thing. Right. And right. what we find in the gospel is like, I want to supplement that with the, the, the other side of the coin where it's going, no, God is actively calling out things as they truly are and dealing with reality and, and saying, um, yeah, again, he's not picking names out of a hat or whatever, like he, but he's addressing reality as it truly is. And that's why I think it can be a danger when we start taking judgment into our own hands of thinking, okay, here's who's going to be in at mm-hmm. the end of the day, who's going to be out. Because that's actually right. God's active territory to judge sin and to deal with, you know, the broken realities of the world in order yeah. to restore creation and set things right again. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so I want to go to one of the parables um, right. because the way you explain these just really makes the picture of this come alive. And some of these parables used to make me so anxious. And the way you explain them just like showed God's love and his mercy and his goodness. So um, would you talk about the parable of the wedding feast and what that story tells us about heaven and hell and God's posture toward all of us? Great. Yes. Okay. Uh, now it's been a little bit, so I got to refresh my memory here, but uh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> That's fine. In, yes. Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, basically like the, the king is throwing a wedding for his son. This is a picture of like God throwing a wedding for Jesus, right? Um, and so the king is like all excited and he's sending out the invites to all of his best friends and like, come on guys, come to the Lord, we're going to do it. And all of his friends are like, hey, we're too busy. I got a little on. I'm watching my neighbor's kid. I don't know. Like people are too busy doing other things. And so the king gets angry and, uh, and if I remember, he goes and like burns down their city. <laughs> which you're kind of like, whoa, overreaction. <laughs> you know, you sh- should have responded to the Evite. You know, like. What's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a picture, uh, this first movement of the parable, it's a picture of Jesus using this as a picture of what has happened with God and his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. So God's goal throughout the biblical story has been to throw a wedding for his son to be united with his people forever. And so yet, and God keeps sending the prophets in the Old Testament to invite his people back to the wedding and yet they kill the prophets, they murder, you know, and so basically God sends his people into exile, and that's pictured with the king burning down the rebellious city, kind of, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the first movement is one where we see um, that there are those who are identified with the people of God, and yet they reject the wedding invitation. They kind of bear God's name in the world, but they don't actually want union with God and what that entails, and it's, they're too busy. They've got other priorities rather than ultimately wanting union with God. And that leads to this judgment, right? But then the next movement of the city is God sends his messengers saying, hey, go out into the lanes and the byways and the villages and the fields and invite the, the sick, the poor, the, the blind, the lame, everyone, anyone who wants to come. And I think there we see this mm-hmm. picture where God's like 
tearing down the walls of his home to invite everyone who wants to come into the feast to be at the mm-hmm. center. And it's not on the basis of how good they are or how bad they are or how much they got it figured out. Or like, like it's on the basis of God's invitation and his mercy that he is calling and inviting everyone and anyone who wants to come, come to the wedding mm-hmm. feast, you know? Um, yeah. And so you got this picture where you've got those amongst God's people who have God's name, but they don't actually want the wedding. And then you've got mm-hmm. God bringing in all these people from outside um, who whoever does want to come be a part of the wedding. Uh, but then the third movement of the parable is where the wedding's going on and the king comes and he finds someone there who's not wearing wedding clothes. And he's like, hey, how'd you get in here, friend? You know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he ends up kicking this guy out of the wedding. And I think that addresses this other tension, which is some going, okay, well, so God weeds out the people within his people who don't actually want the wedding. But then does that just mean everybody else comes in? And no, it's not that it's not universalism. It's not everyone comes in. Like um, this person who got into the wedding but doesn't have the wedding clothes on and gets booted. Uh, I mean, you kind of think about that. I think about it if, like um, if the governor of my state or the president of our country or whatever, you know, if you got mm-hmm. invited to the wedding of their son or daughter, you know, if you got invited to the, their, their kid's wedding, if Joe Biden invited you to wedding of uh-huh. whatever right and you showed up <laughs> i showed up in like my t-shirt <laughs> yeah totally if i showed up yeah. in my t-shirt my boxers you know like hey i'm here you know yeah. you're just kind of hanging out uh-huh. eating the food and drinking you know, and thinking more like dude what are you doing you are you're not treating the wedding with the honor and respect it deserves like you're yeah. here to kind of mooch off the food and whatever but you're not actually here to celebrate the wedding mm-hmm. and uh, and the picture here is going, that's what some might try and do with God's kingdom. It's like, you know, I, I'm coming for the free food. I'm coming to kind of mooch off the party. But I'm not actually here for what the wedding is about. And if that's mm-hmm. you, then, dude, you're going to get booted. You know, like, like mm-hmm. God wants everyone who wants to be at the wedding to be there. But we need to treat the wedding with the honor and the respect. that We need to treat Christ's union with this church, God's kingdom the integrity of god's kingdom it's worthy of an honor and respect and so i think for maybe christians or people who are part of you know like people who go to church to say right one of the ways that we disrespect the wedding is by not really taking the invitation seriously and kind of prioritizing Mm -hmm. other things over union with god but one of the ways outsiders can disrespect the wedding um is is not taking it seriously going like oh i'm just going to kind of bring in my sin and live the way i want to um, and God's not going to be mocked. He's not going to be fooled. You know, that, that doesn't work either. But what I love in this is what we see is the posture of God is a posture of invitation, a posture who wants yeah. any and all who want to come to be there, God desiring that all would be saved, you know, and yet also a God who takes sin seriously, and you could say kind of dignifies, so to speak, like um, our decision for autonomy. It's like, okay, well, then you're not going to be part of the wedding, you know? And mm. Yeah. That, I, I love that and about even, God. It's bull. Yeah. And even like in your book, you pointed out his language toward the person who got kicked out was friend. And I had never noticed that before. Like, whoa. <laughs> yes. Oh man. I did not realize wow. that until working on this book. Well, that was one big epiphany when I was writing it was going, man, yeah. you see repeatedly in Jesus's parables. I draw this out in a number of chapters, but uh, Jesus is, you know, the figure in the parable that represents God, their posture towards the person, they, they're calling them friend, 
son, yeah, daughter. It's right. like it's the language of intimacy, of, of welcome, and yet also calling out the rebellion. But it's, it's, it's mm. still, I would expect God to be like, hey, idiot, <laughs> like, what are you doing here, you know? Right. Uh, and yet he calls them <laughs> friends, you know? Like, it's, yeah. Yes. That was amazing to me. I had never noticed that before. That was amazing. So um, I'm just going to wrap up with two more questions. So well, I think I am. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but um, I wanted to do one more parable, and then I have a final question for you. Um, but could you also walk us through the prodigal son? And again, I, how you talked about the older brother and, again, the father's heart toward him and the younger brother was so fascinating to me. So could you walk us through that parable as well? Yes, definitely. So the, the context um, in that chapter is looking at uh, kind of world religions, like God's judgment as it relates to world religions. And one of the observations, I, th- I think sometimes people, we think, you know, like, as it relates to world religions, like, oh, it'll be the best and brightest of the world religions that will be in the kingdom, right? So if God's judgment is surprised, mm-hmm. we can tend to mistakenly think that, like, okay, it's the most devout, Muslim or the most compassionate Buddhist or the most ascetic Hindu or something to that effect. You know, it's the best and the brightest of whatever traditions are, are going to be there. And I think the mm-hmm. gospel kind of flips that on its head by going, dude, we see in Jesus' own life and ministry, it's often the most religious who have the hardest time with him and reject him when, mm-hmm. when he shows up. And similarly, so the, the claim I want to explore there is how religion can be the very thing that enslaves us, that actually mm-hmm. binds us or um, keeps, prevents us from receiving the mercy of God. And so I explore that kind of in relation to the religions and in a different way how some very core tenets of some of the major world religions are actually antithetical and run counter to the grace and mercy and bigness of the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I try and root that even in looking in the prodigal son story and going like, man, you look at the younger brother and he is the paradigmatic irreligious person, right? Like he's the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, takes dad's money, which is, you know, leaves the family for dead, like... He runs uh-huh. off into Babylon, the distant land, and basically blows the bank account, like just partying it up. Just, yeah, yeah. And in that day, really, it would have been seen as extremely selfish, you know, like, like when he's living just for himself and he's squandering the family mm-hmm. inheritance that was supposed to be stewarded for generations to come for the community. He's blowing it all on himself. Mm-hmm. And that right. becomes a picture, really, of Adam and Eve and all of us. Like what we've done, we've left communion with God. We've gone and blown the inheritance God's given us in fallen, mm-hmm. distant land of sin and all that. Um, and yet he hits rock bottom and comes back to the father. And the father is like looking out in the distance upon the horizon, waiting for his quote unquote irreligious, you know, rebellious son to come back mm-hmm. home. And when he does, he embraces him and, um, and he receives the son's repentance and he brings him home and he throws him a party and a feast. And yet, I think the major point of the parable is the ending. We often stop there, and, and what we see next right, in the parable right. is this encounter with the older brother. And the older brother is the quote-unquote religious brother, right? He's the one who stayed at home, worked the family farm. He's running for mayor. Like, he's like the polished <laughs> and upright politician. You know, he's been doing all the good stuff. He's respected and esteemed in the eyes of the community. And um, we could think of him as kind of the prototypical religious son. He's done all the good, right stuff. He's climbed the ladder. He's, he's done it well. And when his brother comes home, though, and the, he sees the father's reconciling, gracious, merciful work, he gets ticked. He's angry. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> how in the world? Like, why are you throwing this big party at my brother? And, uh, and so the older brother, the, the parable lands with 
the older brother refusing to come into the kingdom party. He's out in the backyard mm-hmm. in the darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth. Um, it's really like a picture of hell, right? Like he's it's mm-hmm. just using this imagery. There's the lights and festivities of the kingdom party going on inside the home, and he's out in the backyard in the darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth. And his father comes out to try and convince him to come into the party. Like, what are you doing out here? Come mm-hmm. in, join the celebration. And what's really interesting is the older brother's words to the father. First, he says, look, like all these years I've been slaving for you. And that's really interesting that he sees his relationship with his dad. He sees his dad not as a mm-hmm. loving father, but as a harsh slave master. Yeah. Like his religious performance, so to speak, as the good son has actually distorted his image of who God is, of who the father is in his, his mm-hmm. eyes and his experience of like, he sees God as a harsh slave master rather than a loving father that he's been jumping through all the hoops mm-hmm. to try and appease, you know? Mm-hmm. And then his relationship to his brother, he says, look, this son of yours, like he's unable to even call him his brother. He's like, this son of yours has been off squandering himself with prostitutes and whatever else in the distant land. Uh, he doesn't see his, he distances himself from his brother. And the, mm-hmm. and the father, I think this is what religion does. It's like, you will push down your brother in order to lift yourself up. Like, look mm-hmm. how much I've been doing for you. But look what he's done. You know, like, right. you, you can use religion to compare yourself to others to try and exalt yourself. Yeah. And the father confronts him on both counts. He says, in relation to you know, him being a slave master or whatever, he says, everything I have is yours. Like, kind of like, if you wanted the party, we could have thrown the party. Like, it's all yours anyway. Like, we could have done it together. You know, like, <laughs> like, 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 I'm your dad. You're my son. We're together. Um, your perception of me is wrong, I think is implicitly what he's saying here. And then he says, mm-hmm. and this brother of yours, he calls him back to, this isn't some, some stranger, guy. this is your brother. He calls yeah. him back to that relationship. And so the heart of all this, I think, is going, I think Jesus is drawing something out here that one of the dangers of what we might call like a religious mentality is that it can um, turn God into a slave master and it can shove down your brother, so to speak, your neighbor, as someone mm-hmm. that you're trying to exalt yourself over. And what the gospel of grace does is it confronts that. And it's a, um, I do think there's an appropriate kind of religious devotion, all that, but it's, it's reframed by grace in mm-hmm. God's upside down kingdom of going, man, true religion is being shaped and formed by the gracious love and mercy of God and letting it take root in every deep area of our life. And it causes us to, us to actually want to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and lift them up and exalt mm. and be willing to take the last seat at the table in order to put others first and to, um, it, it just leads to a kingdom ethic that's radically upside down in the ways of the mm. world. And yet it's yeah. beautiful and merciful and shaped by the radical love of God. I love that. And even just that the father is still pursuing the son, the son's mm. out there. The father's like, come back and calling him son. And, I just never seen that before reading your book. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like that heart of God, like, man, you can't stop love. (laughs) It's like first Corinthians 13. Like it believes all things. It hopes all things. It doesn't fail. So, okay. I have one last loaded question for you (laughs) (laughs) to close out interview. Not that I'm going to throw a loaded fun at you, but should this new understanding of hell change the way that we think about missions and evangelism? And if so, how? Oh, great. You know, so there you go. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. Um, Well, you know, I would say this. So I'm, you know, I love 
missions. I've done a lot internationally over the years. Um, was an outreach pastor, international stuff, you know, for years. Even before that, worked international, kind of nonprofit world and all that. And um, so I'm a big, huge fan of it. And in my mind, um, this doesn't so much uh, lead to a neglect of those things as rather a reframing of why we do those things, you know. And so mm. let me just share a story. I had someone email me uh, a few months ago who has been a long-term missionary in uh, amongst an unreached kind of people group in, in Southeast Asia. And they said, I'm not trying to just put my book, but it was, it was encouraging. They were said, hey, I got your book, and it has been so life-changing and life-altering for me because they said, so cool. I'm, when I, the reason I got into missions and the reason I felt this pressure that was put on me of I need to go save all these people from going to hell. You know, like it's on yeah, my shoulders. Totally. And it felt like this um, unbearable burden or weight to bear that this mm. was riding on me. And it's like explicitly, and I ended up having a Zoom conversation with this person, and he was like, explicitly, like I was told, like, if you don't, like this is the most important thing you can do because if you don't yeah. do this, all these people are going to burn. It's going to be because of you. And, you know, and, and so he's like, for a decade, I've been, op- and, and it was getting so oppressive. And so mm-hmm. the weight of that was just so unbearable that I was losing my faith and wondering whether I could even do this anymore. And it mm-hmm. led to me being kind of moralistic and legalist and how I was approaching missions. And, all, and I was surrounded by some other missionaries in my community here where it felt like they were motivated by the same thing and I was getting ready to throw in the towel and not just on missions but on faith you know mm-hmm. and they're like this saved my faith it reframed so cool. and and actually gave me the motivation to want to be on the mission field still but from a That's very so cool. different motivation and place because it's no longer uh, that I'm bearing the weight on my own shoulders but actually I trust in Jesus. He has been exalted mm-hmm. to the right hand of God and not given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's on his shoulders, not on mine. And I've been called not to save the world, but to bear witness to the one who has, you know, and, and mm-hmm. there's just a freedom in that. And I can trust yeah. God with what ends up happening at the end of the day with various people and all that. Um, but I have been invited to actually bear witness and I'm no longer motivated by, uh, you know, John Calvin said, the fact that, like, if your motivation in becoming a Christian is simply avoiding the fear of hell, then you haven't yet truly become a Christian. <laughs> Essentially, you know, mm-hmm. because that's not mm-hmm. the way the gospel works. It's actually our affections being set aflame for the love of God and the beauty of God and how amazing and beautiful and glorious God is. It's the mm-hmm. love of the good, not simply the fear mm-hmm. of the bad, that drives the Christian yeah. life. And I think that's what this person was speaking to: is this piece of like before it was being driven by kind of a fear of the bad. And now I'm seeing like, no, in the gospel, it's a love of the good. And that doesn't mean that yeah. hell isn't ugly and sin isn't real and the destruction that's wreaked in our world isn't massive. You know, it, it is, it, it is. But it's going, you don't even realize how much sin has ravaged everything until you're able to set it side by side with and compare it to the beauty and weight of God's glory and love, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I know in your book, like you talked about one of your, um, times overseas, I thought it was so cool. You've done so many like really cool things. And you were talking about working with people being rescued from sex trafficking, I think. And one of the pastors there said something like you should spend your time trying to save souls rather than rescue people from sex trafficking. And, um, would you just talk about that experience for a second in this conversation about missions? Yes, I was a newer Christian, you know, but I was working for a, you know, it was an internship through my university. And so I was working there and, but it was the one church I could find in town. And, and yeah, this, uh, this, uh, 
local pastor was saying, hey, you should be here. Why are you working against trafficking? You should be here helping to save souls instead. And something just seemed wrong with that dichotomy. You know, is, is it really mm-hmm. an either or rather than a both end? You know, doesn't Jesus care about right. that too? And, and um, yeah, so I, I think I struggled with that at first, just going, that doesn't make sense. And over time, really growing in the conviction that, yeah, that's a, that's a false dichotomy that people mm-hmm. have made. And I think it's related to, circle back to what we talked about at the beginning, kind of that escapist storyline. Like, yeah, the absolutely. end game is just whisking people out of earth and into heaven uh, rather than hell. And so saving, quote unquote, saving souls, that's, that's the primary agenda, right? Rather mm-hmm. than going, what I think the gospel storyline again is, if God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, then what we get invited into today is um, both receiving that and then participating in that. You know, like that we become mm-hmm. places where heaven yeah. and earth are reconciled by actually letting God reap the wicked fire of sin out of our own hearts and then participating with him. Uh, I talk about in the book, like both holiness and justice as two major tools mm-hmm. there where like there is a huge uh, value we should have on personal holiness. So going, God, am I growing in your love? Am I being shaped by your character? Am I growing to reflect more accurately the image of Christ in the world. Um, Mm. And so there's that personal side of it. Uh, But then also that we care about uh, God's justice or his vision for the world that we're seeking to see. Man, we're attentive to how is sin tearing apart the flourishing of God's good world and how can we partner with Jesus as the body of Christ as his people. You know, I look at Jesus' ministry and everywhere he goes, he's, you know, it's like patches of, heaven breaking into earth, patches of the kingdom of God breaking in, and that as the church, we're Mm. called to be an embassy of God's kingdom, like an outpost where heaven is breaking into earth through us. And um, we're not going to be able to accomplish the finale of that until God's kingdom comes. Um, God's the one who ultimately will do that. And yet, when the gospel gets a hold of your life, God pursues his world through his people, through us as Christ's body. Mm. And so we should partner with him in that, you know, in the power of the mm-hmm. spirit. Yeah. So it's both end rather than yeah. either or. I love that. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And again, all of you watching and listening, definitely check out his book, the skeletons in God's closet. It is fantastic. So, and I'll see you all next week for another episode about growing the good Christian girl. So thank you so much, Joshua and have a great day. Thanks, Tiffany. I had a blast to you as well. Was that not just mind-blowing? There's so much to think about here. So next week, James and I are coming on together to debrief it. We're going to wrap up this three-part series on hell before we move into some other series on LGBTQ+, and social justice, and sexuality and purity culture. We've got some amazing things coming up, but first, James and I want to talk about why is this conversation about hell important? Why does it even matter? And some of our own thoughts as we debrief these new ideas. Well, they're not really new ideas, but new to us ideas together. See you guys next week.